This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. والذي خلق لكم ما في الأرض جميعا ثم استوى إلى السماء فسواهن سبع سماوات وهو بكل شيء عليم رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي فالحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ثم أما بعد ونسجن أبي السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته some uh, outstanding things about the remarkable ayah that we talked about yesterday, the five stages of human life. Uh, you know, Allah Azza wa Jalla says, how dare you disbelieve in Allah and you used to be dead. That ayah, and we went through all of those stages. The first thing that I want to remind you of that I may not have emphasized enough yesterday is the uslub, the style with which the ayah begins. Kayfa billah? The word kayfa is a question word, how, right? And the word how can be asked by uh, someone who's curious. How did you do that? Or how does that work? You know, and that's a like in the in, in science, for example, a lot of how is asked, right? A lot of science is is nurtured by the question of how. But in language, also, how is it used when someone's extremely disappointed with someone or hurt by someone? Mother can say to a son, "How could you say that? How could you do this to me?" You know, and so the word how illustrates how how disappointing someone has been, and how someone has upset you. Now the more beloved someone is, the more loved and the higher the expectations are from someone, when they disappoint you, then the more hurtful and the more the how comes out. You understand? So if you don't care about someone and they do something, it's like whatever. But when you expect things from someone, from your son, from your daughter, from your spouse, from, your, you know, from a loved one, from your sibling, from your student, and then they let you down, then there is a how. And Allah Azza wa Jal, first of all, there was no, there's no closeness to the human beings like the closeness to Allah Azza wa Jal. That closeness I already described to you, we were in our first original existence in the original company of Allah, directly engaged in conversation with Him. There's no closeness like that one. And no, no creature of Allah, no creation of Allah has been granted that kind of closeness and that kind of rank. And we're going to actually, it's, it's interesting that the two ayat that I intend to cover with you today, after them, we're going to get into the story of the first human being. That story is coming. And it also, it seems to illustrate some very nuanced, subtle things in the Qur'an that don't get talked about often. The, the human beings that were created, the legions of human beings that were created, countless of them, that were, all, that were going to come on this earth, and so many of them are still with Allah, and they haven't come yet, because you know, they're going to be born a century later, two centuries later, Allahu A'lam when. That entire group of humanity was actually a secret kept from the angels. They had no idea. They had no clue that that's already been done. And then finally when the decision to put one human being on the earth, the first human being on the earth was declared, then Allah let them know of this intention. And let them know of rather this decision. But we'll get to that inshallah tomorrow. But today I want to tell you that there is a unique closeness to Allah that the human being enjoys. And of course the ultimate example of that is Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Himself, the height of all humanity, the peak of all humanity, is our Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Who, when Allah does call him on the Miraj, when he travels up to the heavens, and he has a meeting with Allah, a direct meeting with Allah, the closest 
any other human being ever got to that point was Musa salam, and that was on top of a mountain. And he spoke with Allah directly. The next elevation beyond that is past the seven heavens, Jibreel alayhi salam escorts Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi salam, and he takes him all the way up and he gets to Sidratul Muntaha and he gets to the stage, this, this highly classified state, place where even Jibreel alayhi salam cannot go any further as massive as Jibreel alayhi salam is and as powerful as he is. Allah Azza wa Jal describes him as the quwwatin, you know, the, the possessor of great might. Actually, even the word Jibreel in its original uh, meaning, in its root etymology from, he, from Hebrew, you know, this, they call him Gabriel. It's Gabriel, actually, from them, from the Hebrew language. And the, the Arabic language adopted it. It actually comes, it shares the root with Arabic, which is Jabr, which means power and ability to, to exert force. And the, the mighty one of Allah, the mighty angel of Allah, that's Jibreel alayhi salam. So when he spreads his wings and when he covers over the sky, then actually uh, you can't see anything else. وَلَقَدْ رَآهُ بِالْأُفُقِ الْمُبِينَ Not فِالْأُفُقِ الْمُبِينَ Like he took over the entire sky. He couldn't see anything else but Jibreel alayhi salam. That same angel, when he escorts Rasulullah all the way up to meet with Allah, there's a point where if he travels any further, his wings will get burnt off. He says, I can't go any further, only you can. That's the closeness Allah has granted to the human being. And that's something very, very special to Allah. Now with that closeness, every single human being, you know, is brought onto this earth, the ruh has blown into our mothers and we come into this life. And of course, now we have two existences. This, this, this soul of ours, this thing made of light, this ruh, this mystery, lives inside of a physical body. And this physical body has physical needs. It has desires. It has appetite. It gets exhausted. You know, there are, there are, it's, it has an existence other than the existence of the ruh. As a matter of fact, when we are sleeping, the ruh is still alive and well, and it's traveling, and it's doing all kinds of things, right? And then it's put back inside of ourselves, you know? So Allah يَتَوَفَّ الْأَنفُسْ حِينَ مَوْتِهَا Allah takes the selves, the, the actual self that you are away from you at the time of your death, but even in your sleep, He takes it away. Now why am I bringing this up? Because as human beings, as we grow up, we have this, first of all, this, this thing inside of us that was in the company of Allah that's constantly seeking light. But you know what? The body takes over. And when the body takes over, human beings get obsessed with things that they need for their physical body. They get obsessed with food. They get obsessed with shelter. They get obsessed with desire, temptation. They get obsessed with you know, having, nurturing a family. They get obsessed with amassing more in the physical, material sense, right? And that's a struggle that every human being has. They're amassing things for their physical body, and sometimes in doing so, they're starving the soul inside of themselves. Because that, that, the thing you have inside you, it's not from this world. It didn't come from here, it came from the sky. And nothing in this world can feed it. Everything in this world can only feed what? Your body. Because your body is made from dirt. And it's from this earth that the body was made. So all of its needs, all of its desires, all of its temptations are fulfilled from where? Here. But there's something inside of us that is just not fulfilled except with something that comes... Because it's from the sky. So it can only be fed from the sky. It can only be fed from the sky. And that's revelation. The idea of revelation is to feed the starving thing inside. Because that, that revelation, like the Prophet ﷺ would describe, is a rope. It's called light, it's also called a rope. What does it do? It takes that ruh that was longing, that light inside of us that was longing for a connection to Allah. Because it's so distant from Allah now, now it's connected back to Allah again with that rope. 
That's the imagery that's, that's painted in the Qur'an of our relationship with Allah. But when someone is given this, when someone's handed that revelation, now the thing that connects you back to your master who you were in such close company of, the same one who, who, who delivered you, he commanded the angel to deliver you into the belly of your mother. You forgot about him? How could you? كَيْفَ تَكْفُرُونَ بِاللَّهِ When you get to this ayah, it's actually supposed to put a human being to shame. كَيْفَ تَكْفُرُونَ بِاللَّهِ Kufr here is not just in the meaning of disbelieving or denying Allah. That is part of the meaning. But it comes in the meaning of kufran and ni'mah also. How can you be ungrateful to Allah? After this reconnection I am giving you, I'm giving you a chance to connect back to me and you're still in denial? Did you forget all the stages I brought you through? ثُمَّ إِلَيْهِ تُرْجَعُونَ At the end, then you're going to be brought, taken back to Him. هُوَ الَّذِي خَلَقَ لَكُمْ he, in fact, is the same one who created you. I'm translating this way on purpose. It's a strange way of translating, but I'm doing that deliberately. The word, the name of Allah in this ayah is actually a dhamir. It's a pronoun, huwa. A pronoun from a language perspective, ya'udu ila masabak. It goes back to what came before it. In other words, Allah is saying the same one who had created you before, and, and you, weren't, you didn't even have this body, and He put you to sleep. Then He put you inside of your mothers. Then the one who gives you life, in this world, and will give you death again. That same one is the one, خَلَقَ لَكُمْ مَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا He's the same one who created for you, whatever's in the earth, all together, all of it. Now what's the connection? The first thing to understand is the connection with the previous ayah. He was, you were in the closest company of Allah, which illustrates how much love Allah has for you. Allah didn't do that for other creations the way He did that for you. And then he decided that he will build you a home on this earth, on this planet. In the entire universe, he picked this small planet for our, you know, our habitat, our home. And then he says, he goes out of his way to say that he created especially for you. He went out of his way for your sake to put, to create things on this earth all together. Meaning everywhere on this earth, there is something that you can benefit from. That is for you. This is a profound statement. Scholars were like baffled by this statement. How is everything in the world created for us? How is a mosquito created for me? You know, atheists ask this question, right? Well, how are cockroaches created for me? Explain that one to me. Or how is this created for me or that created for me? Like they'll, they'll ask this question, because if, you, if everything is for me, then no thanks, I don't like bacteria. Or I don't want virus. Or I don't want this, right? You know, they'll say, how is that for me? The response to that is actually you have, you have to take a step back and take a deeper look at what Allah is saying. The idea of benefit for a materialist, when a, when a person can only think in the material sense, their idea of benefit can only be what? Material. There is no other benefit in their view because they've become entirely materialistic. ذَلِكَ مَبْلَغُهُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ وَلَمْ يُرِدْ إِلَّا الْحَيَاةَ الدُّنْيَا ذَلِكَ مَبْلَغُهُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ he didn't want anything but worldly life. That's the extent of their knowledge. That's as far as they can think. So when they think of anything in the world, they say, how does this physically benefit me? How does this in some, you know, in consumption, in my wealth, in my status, in my security, how is this material good for me? That's the only way they can think of benefit. And that's the tragedy of a human being who forgets that he's not just made of a body, but he's also made of a ruh. And there's a benefit to the body, and there's also a benefit to... What Allah created on this earth, so much of it is a benefit to our body, and so much of it is a benefit to our, our ruh. There are things on this earth that terrify us. Their alligators are terrifying. Snakes, our cobras are terrifying. These things, when they have their fangs out, are like they'll they'll petrify you just out of fear, you know. 
And these things are a reminder to a believer, if Allah can create this kind of fear on the earth, if I disobey Him, what kind of fear can He create in the Akhirah? What kind of punishment can He make in the Akhirah? You understand? When there's some kind of thing you find disgusting in the world, you find snails disgusting, cockroaches disgusting. If you think this ugliness or this insect or this creature that is surrounded by filth and you hate it, you can't stand it, you're, you're, and the smell of it. When you look at these ugly things, you're reminded in this world that Allah Azza wa Jal, just like in this world, He gives you a snapshot, a little picture of Jannah. He'll also give you a little picture of what? Jahannam. He'll also give you a picture of Jahannam. He'll tie physical realities to spiritual realities. He'll do that for you all, you know, over and over again. So even things that don't physically benefit, you are still a reminder for you. إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَتَذْكِرَةً لَذِكْرَةً You know, it is a powerful reminder in this for you, in that for you, and that for you. And by the way, a reminder is always something of benefit. فَذَكِّرْ إِنَّ فَعَتِ الذِّكْرَةً A reminder is always of benefit. So the world and everything in it, is actually a matter of benefit. Whether it's directly of benefit, like the animal, and the skin of the animal, and the flesh of the animal, and the milk of the animal, and the ride of the animal, there's so much of the animal that is of benefit. Or there are animals that we can't eat or consume, or they're poisonous or dangerous, even they have benefit. If the benefit is physical, then the benefit is what? Spiritual. And since the human being is both of these things, so Allah Azza wa created this earth to benefit both parts of our existence. The physical part of our existence, and the spiritual part of our existence. This brings me to another very important point. The, the unity and the consistency in how Allah does things. It's called the sunnah of Allah. Sunnat Allah, وَلَن تَجِدَ لِسُنَّةِ اللَّهِ تَبْدِيلًا It's the legacy of Allah, the way Allah does things, and you will not find any alteration or change in the way that Allah does things. And there's no way it can be replaced. Now, part of what, in order to explain this to you, I won't be abstract, I'll try to be as practical as I can be. Some people are very practical people. They're very practical. Don't tell me about the meaning of this word, or how beautiful this ayah is, or how the words connect with each other. Just tell me what's halal and what's haram, man, that's it, that's all I care about. Just get to the point. Just give me that. Because I just need to, Islam is about action, and we should take action, and that's the end of it, Okay? I just give me a list of what's halal and what's haram, and I'm good to go. We have to be practical as Muslims. There are some people that are very practical in life. And there are some very people that are very artistic in life. And some of your children are very... like. And by the way, some of these more practical people, they end up in the hard sciences. right? And some of the more artistic people, they might end up studying philosophy, art, literature. They might become poets. And the practical guys like, poetry, what do you do with that? What do you do with poetry? You know? Give me like the manual for a car or something. I'd rather read that than poetry. You know, what happens is you have some people that are only concerned. It's it's in 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 the language sense you can say some people are only concerned with substance, and some people are concerned very much with style, right? Some people are of substance and some people are of style. The thing about Allah Azza wa Jal, this world that He created, He didn't make a world of because He said He made it for us. Khalaqalakum ma fil ardi jamian. This world, is it only about practicality? Or did he make things stylistic and beautiful and you know, artistic? Did he do that on this, in this earth? Yeah. Actually, human beings are very functional creatures. right? We're very practical creatures. But he also says, صَوَّرَكُمْ فَأَحْسَنَ صُوَرَكُمْ He molded you, he crafted you. And how beautifully he crafted you. There's a beauty in which the way the human being was created. There's a beauty 
that Allah created in the things around us. And He points at that beauty. And all of our senses, whether it's sight or sound or smell or touch, every one of them has beauty in them. So there are things you enjoy touching. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a surface or the texture, the touch of it gives you pleasure. The sight of something gives you pleasure. It, you appreciate its beauty. The smell of something gives you pleasure. Food didn't have to smell good as I brought up before. But it's actually something that Allah added to the beauty of food. He made it smell beautiful. He made it look, food could be the most delicious thing in the world. But if it looks like dead insects, you're not going to eat it. It has to look good too. Presentation is part of it, isn't it? And that's the sunnah of Allah. In what He made around us, He didn't just make things only practical, and He didn't just make things only beautiful, He actually has a combination of both. Because both of them are necessary. Both of these things in the life of... Because we're not robots. If we were robots and we had no personality, then practical is enough. But Allah Azza wa added a dimension of beauty in life. And by the way, since that is the sunnah of Allah for all of these ayat, all of, the, all of what He created, He exhibited the same exact sunnah in the Qur'an. The Qur'an is not only practical. The Qur'an just tells you, do this, don't do this. If you wanted a list of halal and haram, and who to, like, who to worship and what not to worship and what to believe, I can fit that on one page. Honest to God, you can fit, believe in one God, angels, Afterlife, which is made up of Day of Judgment, Heaven, Hell, Heaven's really good, Hell's really bad. Here's what you can't eat, here's what you can't drink. Done. This is what you got to do, these, these, are the obli- uh, these are your obligations, finished. What does Allah do? He brings up things in His book that make you feel grateful. He brings up things about your past. He, he makes you think about the, 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 the favors that He has given you. You know, he makes you ponder upon the words that he chose. He repeats himself, and every time he repeats himself, it hits the heart differently. Some parts of the Quran are extremely practical. You know, Allah is giving you counsel about your children, the, the distribution of boys and girls when the will is being distributed, when the inheritance is very practical, legal ayat. Then there are ayat in which there's like, all there is is beauty, subhanAllah. All there is is profound beauty. There's no istikhraj of a hukum. You can't pull out a, a, like a ruling from it. All you can get is subhanallah. That's all you can get out of those ayat. So the Qur'an itself is actually a perfect combination of, the, of style and substance. It's both of these things. And both of these things are beneficial for the human being. One of them is not more beneficial than the other. One of them is not more useful than the other. One is incomplete without the other. And so our study of the Qur'an is both of those things. It's always going to be. It's going to be a study of practically what does Allah want us to do. But it's also going to be a study of the appreciation of the beauty of the word of Allah. The perfection of the word of Allah. Both of those things have to go hand in hand. Because that, at the end of the day, is the sunnah of Allah in all things. Including His word. Is that clear to everybody? So that's a, that's a very important consideration when we say, خَلَقَ لَكُمْ مَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا you know, He created for your benefit, for you. Whatever has been, you know, whatever has been placed on the earth altogether. Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah. Ayman ajlikum says, for your sake, interpreting this ayah, He says, for your sake especially. Another place in the Qur'an, Allah says, سَخَّرَ لَكُمْ مَا فِي السَّمَوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا مِّنْهُ He subdued for you. He, سَخَّرَ is actually used for domesticating animals, like a wild horse. You, when you calm it down and it's kind of now, it's, it's lost its pride and it's subjugated before its master. Yeah, سَخَّرْتَ الْفَرَسِ 
You've subjugated the horse and now it's domesticated. Now it's under your control. It listens to you now when you whistle or something or do whatever they do. You know? That's that's the skheer of an... Allah says He did the skheer of the skies and the earth for you. مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا مِّنْهُ And you're wondering, like the exhaustive universe, how infinitely vast the universe is. All of it has been subdued for us? How? How has it been subdued? Because our idea of subdued is, well, it's under our control then. Because when an animal is subdued, it's under our control. Now, a lot of things in the world, are they under our control? Yeah. We are able to manipulate and control resources on this earth like nobody else. We're able to create things out of, the, out of the material, the raw materials of this earth like nobody else. No other creature has been able to do with these raw materials what human beings were capable of doing. And that, the example of that is everything down to the, the, the building we're sitting in, the clothes we're wearing, the technology we're using to broadcast this. This is all made of the raw materials made available on this earth. And in that sense, Allah did subdue this entire earth for us. He did. But the skies is another story. How did he subdue the skies? Some are of the opinion that eventually Allah will give us you know, ways of space travel because of these ayat. He's like, okay, we don't have it yet, but we'll get there. And we're going to have intergalactic travel and Star Wars got nothing on us and we're going to you know, warp speed and all of it. You know? But I think there's a more practical explanation here. Uh, and that is that you know, um, the, when you study the vastness of the universe, and you, when, you, when you talk to scientists that study the vastness of the universe, then you'll find a common theme among them. And the common theme is the universe is full of all kinds of chaos. There are all kinds of explosions of the magnitude that we can't even imagine, happening all the time. Entire star systems get destroyed. Planets get warped. You know, black holes in the universe. I mean, if you, if you can imagine a, 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 the impact of an ex, the explosion of a bomb and the effect that would have on an ant, that's nothing compared to the kinds of explosions and the kinds of impacts and the kinds of you know, activity that's happening in the universe. And they describe it basically as chaos. What's happening in the, in the universe is what? Is chaos. And any one of those gigantic meteors, if at any point, because they're moving all over the place. So they're like, you know, this earth is pretty awesome, but I'm really nervous as a scientist because, I mean, we got lucky this far, but it could be that at any moment, one of those giant meteors or one of those giant, you know, hurling objects in space comes and does what? Hits this planet and we're done. It's finished. So it could be in a matter of a second that all life on this earth is gone. Allah Azza wa Jal, for those who observe and study this, the, the, the vastness of the universe and see the kind of destruction that is possible within the universe, humbles the human being by reminding them he subdued that wild creature of the skies and he kept it at bay and nothing strikes you. Nothing strikes you. Like, you know, like the, the, they have movies made of like a meteor coming towards the earth and the earth is going to get destroyed and we have to now get a spaceship and get on the meteor and blow it up before it hits the earth. Stupid stuff. When Allah decides this, right, you ain't getting on no rocket to get on no meteor. That, that ain't happening. It's going to be done with. But Allah Azza wa Jal has subdued and kept them at bay. It's almost like saying, you know, you are in the proximity of a wild animal. And Allah has gone out of His way to calm down the wild animal. Like Allah calmed down the fire for Ibrahim alayhi salam. Kuni bardan wa salaman. Be cool. Be a, be a source of peace on Ibrahim alayhi salam. That's the impact. And, that, and in that sense also the earth. Look, the earth is capable of volcanic eruptions. The earth is capable of earthquakes. The earth is capable of cracking open. The earth is capable of 
you know, te- tectonic shifts and entire tsunamis can hit and drown us even if we're hundreds of miles away from sea, there are waves possible that can actually wipe all of us out in, in, in no time. Okay? And that, this stuff, people who study geology say, yeah, that could actually happen at any time too. So even the earth is capable of just letting loose, going crazy. But Allah did what to the earth? Subdued it. He humbled the earth. He, he kept it calm. And you know, this is actually something that it, at the end of the, the cycle of the world, when the world does come to an end, when Allah Azza wa decides that this world is no longer of, you know, meant to serve this purpose, then the day of judgment is going to begin. Then, one of the expressions for the earth is, وَأَخْرَجَتِ الْأَرْضُ أَثْقَالَهَا The earth will bring out its heavy burdens. Like it's been holding its breath, it's been wanting to explode. And it's just like... <laughs> and finally Allah says, go ahead. And it just goes crazy. The oceans start boiling over. إِذَا الْبِحَارُ سُجِّرَتْ فُجِّرَتْ Oh my God! The oceans just start exploding and boiling over. The earth starts getting stretched. إِذَا الْأَرْضُ مُدَّتْ وَأَلْقَتْ مَا فِيهَا وَتَخَلَّتْ It starts getting stretched and whatever is inside it gets start getting thrown. It starts throwing out whatever it's had. And تَخَلَّتْ is actually used when a mother gives birth and goes, Ah! Oh. When the baby comes out and she feels that relief, Allah describes the earth is going to be like, I'm holding so much inside me that I just want to spit out. And it's going to give it out and finally the earth is going to go, oh. The image of alqat ma fiha wa takhalat is like a sheet, like a crumpled up sheet on a bed with stuff on it and you yank it and you just everything just pops up. You know? That's the image of what's going to happen with the earth. But until then, sakhara lakum. He subdued it for you. خَلَقَ لَكُمْ مَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا Another interpretation of مَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا has actually been the جَمِيعًا goes back to أَنْتُمْ يعني أَنْتُمْ جَمِيعًا Meaning, He created whatever is on this earth for all of you, all together, for humanity to share at large. For, and by the way, the kalam, the conversation here began with يَا أَيُّهَا nas people. So all people were supposed to share the resources on the earth. This was supposed to be a place we had to learn to coexist. This was not a place where all human beings, by the way, you will learn later on, inshallah, when you get to surahs like Surah Al-Ma'idah and other places, we were, we're, learned, we're gonna learn that actually for the majority of the world's existence, Allah's plan was not to make everybody Muslim. We're supposed to carry out the da'wah, yes. We're supposed to be able to preach the message of Islam. But the history of humanity, and the, even the future of humanity, until a very late time, almost right before the Day of Judgment, right at the end, you find the entire earth is believer. But for the vast majority of the career, the story of humanity, it, humanity was supposed to have been diverse. It was supposed to be a mix of Christians and Jews and Buddhists and others and you know seekers and Muslims. There was supposed to be there. And Allah opened the blessings of this earth for who? For all of them. For all of them. And this is actually part of the plan of Allah. That he, Ya Ayyuhannas, that's where the conversation began. He's the one who created the world for you. All of it, all together. Because the blessings of the earth were the way by which human beings could find their way back to Allah. So then he says, ثُمَّ اسْتَوَى إِلَى I'll roughly translate in one of the possible translations. There are several possible, but I'll only incline towards one because I don't want to get too philosophical in this discussion. He says, then he turned his attention towards the sky and, and balanced them out into seven skies. He turned, and إِلَى sama could also mean he turned his attention upward. Sama comes from the word sumu, which means upwards. So he turned his attention upwards and molded or fashioned or evened, balanced, 
it into them into seven skies, seven layers of skies. Now, what in the world does that mean? Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah says, for example, about al-istiwa, that the, the word I explained as turning attention towards something has several meanings. The, the first of them, al-istiwa'u fil lugha al-irtifa'u wal-ulu'u ala shay. فَإِذَا اسْتَوَيْتَ أَنْتَ وَمَنْ مَعَكَ عَلَى الْفُلْكِ لِتَسْتَوُوا عَلَى ظُهُورِ Quran uses the word istawa to rise over something, to climb onto something. Like when Nuh and his people were going to climb on the ship, Allah says, فَإِذَا اسْتَوَيْتَ أَنْتَ وَمَنْ مَعَكَ عَلَى الْفُلْكِ When you and those who are with you rise up and settle on the ship. Okay? The same way when you're riding on an animal and you sit on an animal, لِتَسْتَوُوا عَلَى ظُهُورِهِ so that you can find, you know, climb up and sit on its backs. Allah Azza wa Jal uses the same word for the idea of the arsh, which is above the seven heavens. Allah says, "Ar-Rahmanu ala al-arsh istawa." Right? He he rose up. That's one possible translation. He rose up on the throne. But then the problem becomes: What does that mean? Human beings aren't help, they can't help themselves but start imagining a throne and a king rising up on the throne. And this becomes inappropriate for Allah Azza wa Jal. So Imam Malik's statement became kind of a standard in this ummah. And I'll repeat that for our, all of our benefit. Al-istiwa'u ghayru majhul. Rising, the, the idea of istiwa, whether it means turning attention or rising, it is not unknown. It's very well known that Allah did the act of istiwa on the arsh. There's no, it's not a mystery that that, that happened. Okay? And how it happened cannot be understood. That is a matter with Allah that just can't be understood. And believing that it happened is absolutely mandatory. It is a necessary part of our faith. And asking about it, how exactly did it happen? Could you explain to me? What does it mean? You know, does that mean there's a throne? Does it have decoration? What you know, when you start getting into like really wanting to find out these details, and he says asking about it is an, a, a, a heinous innovation, meaning a new thing invented in the religion that will destroy the religion. So Imam Malik's idea of bid'ah, for example, in this in this statement, is that of people focusing on things that they shouldn't be focusing on. Allah Azza wa Jal in the beginning of the surah put us in our place when he said alif lam mim. There are some things that are only with Allah. And you know what's most beautiful in this ayah? I love this part. He says, And you're like, how? I want to know how. I want to know how. I want to know how. And Allah says to you in the ayah, He knows everything. What is He telling you? You don't know anything. You don't know. Just know your place. Just, just by the time you get to the, this part and say, I want to know the details of how that works. Allah Himself puts the believer's mind at rest and says, you need to be okay with the fact that you don't know everything, only Allah does. وَهُوَ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ It's incredible that the ayat have so much guidance in them. They have an orientation in them. Quran is not just about knowledge, it's a way to think. It's a way to think. So the, the thinking of the human being is directed by the kalam of Allah. But some did say, well, I translated it as turned attention. Where did I get that from? Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah says, Imam al-Qurtubi says, aqbala ilayhi, istawa, aqbala ilayhi, face towards it, turn towards it. Kana fulanun muqbilan alayya, aw ala fulanin thumma istawa ilayya, aw alayya. And this is the position of Imam al-Bayhaqi also. He interpreted it as qasada ilayha. He turned his attention towards it. Ba'da dhalik. You know, 
So now, why even? What are some benefits that we can derive without getting into the philosophical details of the unseen? What are some things we can benefit from in this ayah? Allah Azza wa Jal first mentioned the earth, then He mentioned the skies. Even though in other places in the Quran, wal arda ba'da dhalika dhahaha, akhraja minha ma'aha wa mar'aha. Like He created the skies, and after that He made the earth. That's what He mentions elsewhere. But here He says, "Who is the Lakum ma fil ardi jami'an?" So it seems like the order is reversed here. The word thumma in Arabic doesn't just come for tarahi, doesn't just come for this happened, thereafter this happened. Thumma can also be thought of, you can say, ilafatan, meaning moreover. Not only did he make everything in this world for your benefit, moreover, he turned his attention towards the sky. You can also translate it here as secondarily, he turned his attention towards the sky and molded them into seven skies. You know what that's teaching us? That's actually teaching us that Allah is in this ayah telling us what a priority he made for the world, this world, to be extra beautiful for the human being, for it to be a comfortable place for the human being. And Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah, I'll quote him again, because he said such profound things about this ayah. He says, he made this earth beautiful, functional, practical, full of blessings for you, so you can gain the strength to be obedient to Him. So you can be appreciative of Allah and obey Him more. So you can have all the energy you need, all the resources you need to worship Him better. SubhanAllah. So فَسَوَّهُنَّ سَبْعَ سَمَوَاتِ He balanced them into seven skies. What those seven skies means, only Allah Azza wa Jal knows. By the way, the sister of this surah is Ali Imran, the next surah. And in the beginning of that surah, Allah will address this issue again. You'll notice that there are some things that we cannot know in their full scope. There's no way for us to know. And Allah will mention that here again, There are some things that are ambiguous. They sound like you can get it, but you really can't get it. People who have some kind of deviation in their hearts, they get after that stuff. They get obsessed with what they can't know. To start some new kind of scandal. Or to come out with some new interpretation so they can get, take credit and say, by the way, I come up with a new interpretation for this. I got, nobody else figured this out. I figured this out. Now I, I know what the seven skies means. You know? And I'll tell you my own personal position, Allahu Ta'ala A'lam Sawab, in my own study of the Qur'an, what I find the most convincing about the seven skies is that the most we will ever, ever, ever know physically is the first sky. Like the most human beings will ever get to is the first sky. What's, what's that based on? There are seven skies. The lowest sky is called As-Sama Ad-Dunya. Literally meaning the lowest sky. Lowest of how many? Seven, right? Allah says, وَلَقَدْ زَيَّنَّ السَّمَاءَ الدُّنْيَا بِمَصَابِيحَ We beautified the lowest sky with lamps. What's he referring to as lamps? Stars. So when you get the most powerful telescopes in existence, and you can look at hundreds of thousands, if not millions and billions of light years into space. And as far as you can see, what do you see? Stars. Which means this decor- the decoration of all we see is still stars. So long as you're seeing stars, you're still in what sky? The lowest one. The lowest one. And then there's two, three, four, five, there's other floors to go. <laughs> Subhanallah. So this is just, you know, فَسَوَّهُنَّ سَبْعَ سَمَوَاتِ وَهُوَ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمٍ The last comment on this, inshallah ta'ala, and I'll actually make it short today because I, maybe I do want to go further. Yeah, we have time. And you guys just got relief, but no. You, you, I'm going to go further. I, I'll tell you something. 
about shirk on the side. Uh, but before I get talk about shirk, actually something I meant to tell you. The journey of the human being began, Allah Azza wa talked about it, that you used to be dead and He brought you life. And then He talked about the world being created for us. It seems like Allah is talking about the beginnings. Right? The surah is beginning with the beginnings. And it's very appropriate that the Qur'an, the entire Qur'an, its, its first major chapter is Baqarah. And the first part of Baqarah was about our relationship with revelation itself. Those who believe in it, those who are hypocritical about it, you know, all of that. Those who you know, produce something like it if you don't believe in it, people who criticize it and talk about its examples, that was done with. Now Allah starts talking about the beginnings of not just the human being, but the beginnings of all creation. And this is very appropriate in the beginning of the Qur'an itself, right? The story of humanity starting with the story, uh, the story mentioned in Baqarah and the, the narrative in Baqarah. By the time you get to the end of the Qur'an, the last several surahs of the Qur'an, I think everybody here knows that the overwhelming subject matter is the afterlife. So it's as though in the sequence of the Qur'an you have the beginning of the journey of the human being all the way to what? The end of that journey, subhanAllah. Like it's this beautiful timeline illustrated even in the order of the Qur'an. But what I wanted to share with you is that uh, uh, about that, that longing for Allah, one thing I skipped and it, it's really valuable. I find it really valuable. Allah Azza wa Jal says, and I remember I told you, one of the last things I told you yesterday was human beings, everything they pursue, the pursuit of beauty and the pursuit of perfection, they find themselves unsatisfied and keep wanting more and more and more. Where does it ever end? Quran itself tells us, وَأَنَّ إِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ الْمُنْتَهَىٰ and that only towards your master, when you head towards your, your Rabb, will you find the final stop. Like you won't want anymore. You won't want anymore. You know Allah Azza wa Jal describes in, in Jannah, people being given by Allah. And they keep saying, Hasbi, hasbi Rabbi. My, my master, enough, enough, enough. I, have enough. I don't want anymore. I don't want anymore. They're completely satisfied. In this world, even if you say, I don't want anymore, you do. Like, you do. Like, you know, when you're at somebody's house and they're like, Ni or kai, or kai. Like, ne, 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 ne. Like, you know, like, hurry up, put more. Not the big piece, actually. <laughs> and they put the piece with all the bones and not the meat, and you're like, I want more. This is what you give me? You know, like. <laughs> but in, when we come in the company of Allah, there's no more to want. And my, one of my favorite ayat in the Quran, man. This is the most favorite ayah in the Qur'an. Right after Allah says, وَأَنَّ إِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ الْمُنْتَهَىٰ He says, وَأَنَّهُ هُوَ أَضْحَكَ وَأَبْكَىٰ He is the one who makes one laugh. And He is the one who makes one cry. Every laughter you've enjoyed, every bit of joy you've enjoyed, actually was revealed from Allah. And every time you've cried, it was given by Allah. And the ultimate experience, and by the way, a laughter is an expression of something you enjoyed. And enjoyment is a fraction of what you had when you were in the company of Allah. And you know, the te- there are tears of sadness, but you know the, the strongest of tears are not tears of sadness. They're tears of joy. When someone's so happy, they can't even help crying. Like, men do that sometimes, women do that a lot. You know. Why are you crying? I'm so happy. <laughs> like, this is happy? This looks exactly like yesterday's sad. How am I supposed to tell the difference? <laughs> but there is such a thing as being so overwhelmed with joy that your laughter starts coming with what? With tears. 
And you know, this ayah is so beautifully placed because when finally we are in the company of Allah, ila rabbikal muntaha, can you imagine meeting with Allah again? What emotions will a human being go through when they're in the company of Allah again? It's going to be laughter and it's going to be tears. And He's going to cause it because he's, we're in His company. It's so amazing. And if, you, if you're looking forward to that, then it's okay. Then the, the, the death that is coming to all of us in this life is not a problem anymore. So the next ayah is, He's the one who's going to give death and He's the one who's going to give life. You know, These seven skies that Allah just talked about, what is the function of them for us? We're going to travel these seven skies. The soul is going to go through, the Prophet would tell us, when we die, we're going to go through these seven skies. We're going to be meeting angels at every one of these stops. And eventually come before Allah and be told that this is a good soul, may Allah make us of them. And they're brought back into their grave and they're just enjoying, relaxing. They're in raha. They're in relaxation until Allah calls them again. But now they've been in the company of Allah. You know? This, this is the... This is, the, the journey that all of us have to look forward to. And so now, Allah Azza wa Jal begins way at the beginning. When this whole story began. When all, when all human beings were created, but one of them was chosen to come to this earth first. Because we were all with Allah. By the way, Adam alayhi salam is the first human being, yes? Only in the worldly sense. Only in the worldly sense. Why? Because in the spiritual sense, all of us were created when? At the same time. This is why... Allah Azza wa Jal says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ اصْطَفَى آدَمَ No doubt Allah chose Adam. You can only choose someone when there is a what? Choice. There's others. If Adam a.s. is the only one, then you don't say, اصْطَفَى And he put him next to, إِنَّ اللَّهَ اصْطَفَى آدَمَ وَنُوحًا وَآلَى إِبْرَاهِيمْ وَآلَى عِمْرَانْ عَلَى الْعَالَمِينَ no doubt Allah in fact chose Adam salam, Nuh, Ibrahim, the family of Imran, you know, over, over all the other nations of the world. And all of them we know were chosen from among their nation. So who is Adam chosen among from? Of all the arwah, one of them is pulled, and that is the ruh of Adam salam, And then he's going to put it into this body, the first body that's been created by Allah, the one crafted by Allah Himself. You see, Allah Azza wa Jal, He even says, هُوَ الَّذِي يُصَوِّرُكُمْ فِي الْأَرْحَامِ He's the one who molds you inside the bellies of your mothers, however he wants. All of us are actually Allah design. All of us are Allah's design. But the first design is actually that of Adam salam. And when someone has beautiful eyes, a nice forehead, good skin, texture, color, hair, all of the good features that a human being can have, somebody has good height, you know, somebody has good, good, good you know, bone structure, whatever it may be, the ultimate form of all of it was actually given to Adam salam and our mother Hawa alayha. And all the beauty that human beings have thereafter is actually a byproduct of the beauty that our parents enjoyed. That's our, they're, they're the most beautiful human beings ever created. Those two. You know? And because Allah Himself directly molded him out of clay. That's the most direct creation of Allah. And that was made, not that create all of the other creations, they're on the earth. That creation is up in Jannah. That molding is happening up in Jannah. So it's unique. Now Allah Azza wa finally decides this and He says this. And before I tell you what He says, I want to share with you what happens in the biblical account. In the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, there is no record of the conversation we're about to read in the Qur'an. There's no such record of Allah talking to the angels and saying, I've decided I'm going to put someone on the earth. Okay? I'm going to put a khalif. There's, there's no conversation. However, 
the Christian and Jewish tradition is not limited to the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a lot of oral tradition. There are a lot of additional texts and writings. I told you before there were factions of the Jewish community that actually believed in exhaustive oral tradition. And a lot of these oral traditions were passed down generation after generation. And they were very vastly in circulation about three centuries before the coming of Isa and three centuries after. So these 600 years is actually when a lot of these oral traditions were also starting to get documented. These are extra-biblical texts. They're not from the Bible, they're in addition to the Bible. And it's actually in these texts that you find reference to Judgment Day, Hellfire, Heaven, Jinn, Angels, and this story too. It's not found in the Bible, but it's found in some of the Babylonian rabbinic accounts and the Talmudic accounts. There is something like this story. So I want to tell you the closest thing to this that people remembered. It's not accurate, but I still want to tell you what they remembered, or what they believed. They believed that God decided to create human beings, uh, create a human being, but before He created him, He called a bunch of angels. And He said to them, I'm going to create a human being, and put him on the earth. And He's going to, you know, eat, you know, he's going to have control over the sea and the fish, and He's going to eat from the fruits, and He's going to have all this dominion over the land. What do you think? And the angel said, terrible idea, no, 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 I don't think we should do this, this is, this is bad. And God destroyed all those angels. Then he called a whole bunch of new angels and said, what do you think? I'm going to create a human being. They said, terrible idea. It's really bad. They're going to kill each other. They're going to make bombs and tanks, whatever. And, you know, it's, it's bad. He kills all of them too. Then he calls a third group of angels. And the, he says, what do you think? I'm going to create a human being. They said, mm, seems like a good idea. Let's go for it. And that's when he created the human being. Okay? So that's roughly the... And I, when I first heard this, I didn't believe it. I did not believe... Like, come on. No. No. This Really? So it just so happened that yesterday's iftar was at, you know, at the Irving Masjid, and it was a civic iftar, so we had leaders from the Jewish community, Christian community, several churches that were there. And I spoke at the iftar, and after the iftar, I'm sitting next to the rabbi, and I was like, hey, so the creation story, you guys have like God asked the angels, and then he killed all of them because they said bad idea, and then he brought a whole bunch of other angels and killed all of them too, and then another, he goes, yeah, we have that. I was like, okay, verified story, excellent. Now I can quote it in my lecture. <laughs> you know, heard it from the, the, the horse's mouth, the kosher horse's mouth, uh, the, the rabbi's mouth. But anyway, well, but, but thanks to the rabbi for confirming it. Uh, anyway, you know, so, but the idea is, now what does the Qur'an do with this? This was the known kind of story within the Jewish community. And the Qur'an is retelling the story, but what does Allah do? Allah doesn't ask the angels, what do you think? Allah tells them. You know, in Arabic when you say, أَجْعَلُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ خَلِيفَةً I'm gonna put, I'm not translating khalifa yet because it's loaded, I'm gonna put a khalifa on the earth. That means you can say, well, are you sure? We could discuss this. But you say, إِنِّي جَاعِلٌ When you use the ism fa'il, when you use the definitive active participle, the, this is now a noun, it's set. I have made up my mind, no doubt about it, I am putting a khalifa on the earth. Allah Azza wa Jalla is not asking the angels their opinion. He's actually telling them. He's telling them. This, this decision has been made. This is done. I'm just, I'm informing you, not asking you. Okay? Now Allah is talking to the legions of angels. Allah did not specify that there's a small group of them. Some ulama believe that this was some angels. Others believe it was all the angels. I would, at the very least, you would have to argue these are the angels that are closest to Allah, which Allah describes in the Quran, Hafina Hawlal Arsh, the ones that are surrounding and doing tawaf around the Arsh, Yahmiluna Al Sharabika Fauka Idin, the eight that are hovering and holding the Arsh of Allah together, Yusabihuna Bihamdi Rabbihim. 
They're the ones who are doing tasbih of Allah. The countless angels in the like, you know, infinite number that are closest to Allah are now hearing the announcement, I am putting a khalifa on the earth. Inni ja'ilun fil ardi khalifa. The other thing to note here that's very important, and I, I find this very convincing. Dr. Samirai pointed this out. Uh, may Allah preserve him. He points out that the command that is coming, you guys all know the story, the command is that he's going to do sajda, right? That Allah is going to tell them to do sajda. But actually, the, the command to prostrate for the angels is one, but it seems that Allah went out of His way to ask Iblis exclusively to do sajda too. مَا مَنَعَكَ أَن تَسْجُدْ إِذْ أَمَرْتُكَ what prevented you from doing sajda, from prostrating, when I specifically commanded you? So there's a collective command to all of the angels, but in Surah Al-A'raf we learn that Allah exclusively targeted who? Iblis. Khasatan. Now, Allah mentions that once. He doesn't mention that every time. And we know that Iblis, you know, if you follow the Israeli uh, narrations, these are again extra biblical texts. That they, you know, that he was given dominion, even kingdom or leadership over the angels, and he had this high position. So when Allah commanded them, it includes him. The Quran is hinting that it com- Allah commanded him directly. Also, that solves a problem because for a lot of people, you know, the ayah says Allah commanded the angels, and they all did sajda except who? Iblis. And they're like, well, if Allah commanded the angels, then he must have been from the angels. But Qur'an itself solves that problem by saying Allah exclusively commanded him. Allah actually issued the order to him in addition. And that, that, that resolves that problem. But anyway, إِذْ قَالَ رَبُّكَ لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ إِنِّي جَاعِلٌ فِي الْأَرْضِ خَلِيفَةً I am putting a khalifa in the next 10 or 12 minutes or so, inshallah. I'll just say some things about the word khalifa that I think are, um, that is valuable. Uh, I'm going to put a khalifa, someone to be left behind on the earth. I don't know how far we can take the extra biblical texts and rely on them. They seem to be in line with what the Qur'an is suggesting. That's the only reason I'll bring them up. Because they don't seem to contradict the account of the Qur'an. They seem to be in line with the account of the Qur'an. And a lot of those oral traditions, in one way or the other, are passed down, how much they've been changed from the teachings of prophets. After all the corruption, it's still somehow or the other, you can tell from the teachings of prophets, right? Now, Part of their, their story, the Jewish story, that didn't make its way into Torah, but extra texts, is they had a group called Benai Elohim. That's a Hebrew terminology, literally meaning, it's blasphemous in, in, our, in our terminology, children of God. Okay? That's, and I, I'm sure you've heard Christians and Jews use the phrase, we're all children of God. Right? Which actually, in a figurative sense, means people that are close to God or dear to God. doesn't literally mean children. So there's a story about these creatures that were close to God, that were placed on the earth, and they caused all kinds of chaos on the earth. And then that rebellion was put down. Okay, that's the, that's the account that they have. And some of our Mufassirun have actually taken that from the Israeliyat, which doesn't mean they took it from the Old Testament, but also suggests that the Muslim scholars were in access of these extra biblical texts as well. But anyway... So the, this rebellion was put down, and it, you know, now Allah Azza wa decides once again to the angels, by the way, I've decided I'm going to leave somebody behind on the earth, Khalifa. Khalifa comes from the Arabic word khalf, which means to be behind, literally. So some have interpreted it to mean, yakhlufu ba'duhu ba'da, that I will leave someone who will have children, who, who will have children, who will have children, who will have children. He'll keep on leaving children behind. 
I will, ha- I will put someone on the earth who has many generations to come after him. That's the idea behind the word Khalifa. Another suggestion behind the word Khalifa is actually someone left behind to do as he pleases. You know, like for example, you have a manager that you trust at your company. You say, hey, I'm going on vacation. I am leaving you behind. And when I leave you behind, what does that mean? You're going to have to make the decisions. I'm putting my phone on airplane mode. Right? Because you're, you're in charge now. You, you're the one left behind. He's in a sense the Khalifa. And the idea is, I'm going to leave someone behind on the earth to make decisions. I'm going to give him free will, and I'm going to let him do as he pleases. This is the idea of Khalifa. The other idea of Khalifa is someone left behind that represents, like in a sense, the manager represents who? The boss, right? A manager will only be left behind if the, man, if the owner has trained him really well, and the, the owner is confident that even in my absence, he will think, what would, have the boss, what would the boss have done? I should do what the boss would have done. So he's going to represent the decision-making patterns of his boss. So he's going to reflect the attributes of his boss when he's left to make his, those decisions. He's not going to change the management style, fire everybody under you know, the company, and change the name, and change the logo, and change the address, and the guy comes back from vacation, and he's like, what is that? Well, you left me in charge. I thought you represented me. I thought I trained you well. You, you know, you, the, the company is going in this trajectory. Even in my absence, it should continue to go in this trajectory. This ties us back to the idea of, you know, of, of Khalifa from, from before when Allah, we were in Allah's company. When we were in Allah's company, I told you we took on you know, droplets of the attributes of Allah, like mercy, like creativity, like the pursuit of wisdom. Allah is wise, we want wisdom. Like the pursuit of knowledge. These attributes were given to us. So when Allah says Khalifa, He's going to leave on the earth someone who is going to take advantage of these droplets, of the attributes of Allah that exist inside of His ruh, and He's going to do right on the earth. This is all embedded inside the word Khalifa. And that's why, you know, it's important to note that the rest of the world, the rest of the existence that Allah made, all of it is in submission to Allah. Right? The exception used to be, seems to be the human beings and the jinn. What does Allah do over and over in the Qur'an? سَبَّحَ لِلَّهِ أَوْ يُسَبِّحُ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ أَوْ لَهُ الْمُلْكُ وَلَهُ الْحَمْدِ يُحْيِي وَيُمِيتُ وَهُوَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْنِ قَدِيرٌ Everything in the skies and the earth declares Allah's perfection. It does exactly what Allah tells them to do. هُوَ الَّذِي خَلَقَكُمْ فَمِنْكُمْ كَافِرٌ وَمِنْكُمْ مُؤْمِنٌ But He made you, and some of you believe and some of you disbelieve. Everything else follows the pattern. Everything else is in line. And you people, some of you come and stay in line, some of you get out of line. But you're going to have to make that choice yourself, and that's the, that's the decision he declares. In these last five minutes, what I want to share with you, inshallah, is something about the, the, a principle of the Qur'an. Who is speaking so far? I am, I'm placing a khalifa on the earth. Who's the one speaking? Allah. Who's he speaking to? If qala rabbuka lil malaika. What do we know about the malaika? First, we know they're very close to Allah. Second, we know they're constantly doing tasbih of Allah, declaring His perfection. يُسَبِّحُونَ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّهِمْ Third, we know لَا يَعْسُونَ اللَّهَ مَا أَمَرَهُمْ وَيَفْعَلُونَ مَا يُؤْمَرُونَ They don't disobey Allah in whatever He told them to do, and they do what they're told. They, they immediately do, they execute what they're told. وَبِأَمْرِهِ يَعْمَلُونَ they, they, Only by His command do they act. What I'm trying to get at is, in the, in, the, in the view of Islam, in the view of the Qur'an, what Allah teaches us, angels are incapable of what? 
disobedience, disrespect, shirk, kufr, denial, they're incapable of any kind of blasphemy altogether. Is that clear to everybody? Okay. Allah talked to them and said, I've made a decision. The decision is I'm going to put a human being on the earth. Now listen to this. You're going to be placing on it someone who's going to cause corruption? And he's going to spill count the endless blood? Rivers of blood? Excuse me? You're going to put someone on the earth? Even though he's going to... This problem and this problem? What, seems, what does it seem like the angels are doing? We're questioning Allah. They're saying, you're putting someone on the earth. Oh, we think it's a pretty bad idea. And here's why. The reason is, he's going to cause a lot of corruption. And he's going to spill a lot of blood. Now, before we deal with that problem, up until now, like since Adam until 2016, it seems like we've proven to the angels that they were wrong. <laughs> But that's a separate point. Because <laughs> corruption, us, come on. Spill blood? It's, no, not, not us. You know. So they seem, do they seem to have, now that we know, do they seem to have a valid criticism? They do. But the bigger point is the fact that they even have a criticism. Who are they to have a criticism against the command or decision already made by who? By Allah. Now let's take a step back. You're studying Islam. You're studying deen. You're studying with a scholar. You're studying with a teacher. And you read something you don't understand. You say, Ustad, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand how this can be. There's an imam giving a lecture. A guy comes up after the lecture and says, by the way, you said this, this, this. How does that even make any sense? And the imam says to him, Kafir, you question the word of Allah? Who are you? What are your qualifications? Where did you get your degree? I have an ijazah in this, 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 and this. You're going to question me? Akhrijuhu min al-masjid. Kick him out of the masjid. Don't let him come back. This is Iblis. You know? In other words, when you say something about the command of Allah, or the decision of Allah, or the revelation of Allah, and somebody comes along and says, this is not making sense to me. I don't understand how this can work. This seems to be a contradiction. How is this a good idea? Then our immediate response is what? Kafir. How can they? This is blasphemous. You can't ask that question. Astaghfirullah al-Azim. Tawbah, 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 tawbah. Like, you know, however you can do it, you know. And sometimes it sounds like it. Some aunties do it so cool, right? They like, they look like they were trained by the, you know, the airport. You know, when they do, direct the planes. Tawbah, tawbah, you know. <laughs> you know, get the plane to the gate. But anyway, what we're learning in the Quran is angels who never disobey Allah, never disobey Allah, and are only in obedience to Allah and never question His perfection. Asked Him a pretty direct question when they didn't get it. Does that take away from the fact that they're obedient? No, it didn't make them shayateen. By the way, in the same story, later on, somebody else will ask a question. I'm gonna do sajda to someone you made from clay? Who asked that question? So angels asked a question, Iblis also asked a question, but Iblis asked a question and becomes Iblis, shaitan. Angels ask a question, and I, actually I, I'd like to argue 
that the question of Iblis is a lot less offensive to human beings. Iblis's problem was he's made of dirt. That's it. He's, the people, human beings are made of dirt. That's his problem. Angels, their problem is he's corrupt. He's a killer. Isn't that a lot more offensive than you're made of dirt? And Iblis didn't say something elaborate about himself, like I am so much more qualified. He did say, But he says, you made me from fire. Angels, actually, if you don't think about this carefully, angels turn to, to Allah Azza wa Jalla and say, this guy is corrupt, he's a killer, we do tasbih of you. And we're the ones who declare you to be pure. This sounds, this doesn't sound very humble. This sounds like, why are you giving him the job? Give us the job. And yet they're not, Allah is not angry with them. Allah doesn't punish them. And we already know they don't disobey Allah. They're not, you know, they, they, don't, they don't contradict Allah. They have no ounce of, you know, of pride in them. Then how do we understand this text? I feel like teasing you and not telling you any of it until tomorrow. But I'll tell you a little bit of it. I'll give you a hint. So you can think overnight. I want you to think Quran so you can think. This is not just so I can tell you all the answers. I need you to like rack your minds. What is going on here in this story? Allah Azza wa Jal is teaching us that it's not just the question. It's how you ask the question. It's not just about what you ask, it's also about how you ask. It's about how you ask. There's there's curiosity. Curiosity in and of itself is not forbidden. Not understanding even the command of Allah, not understanding it, not being convinced yet, is not forbidden. But if you come and ask, and you, you question it with pride, arrogance, criticism, you come across as talking down about it, then you've got, the, you've got an Iblis problem. But when you come and ask the same question, you don't understand, but you make sure you say to, to Allah, Ya Allah, I'm asking this question, but I no, in no way mean any offense. In no way do I mean that this is imperfect. All I mean is, I don't understand. That's all I mean. Then you have every right to ask a question. Our religion is actually a religion of questions. فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَتَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of remembrance, if you people don't know yourselves. I would argue, in the Islamic education model, and in, the, in all education systems, this needs to be a principle. You have the right to ask questions. And when people in positions of authority, professors, scholars, whoever, when they get offended by a question, they are actually departing from the sunnah of Allah. If Allah can give angels the permission to ask a question, who's left? How can you and I say, how dare you ask? You can't. You have to then acknowledge the... the what you can criticize, however, is attitude. Attitude is wrong. If somebody comes with an arrogant attitude, you must put them in their place. And that's the sunnah of Allah too. That's what He did with who? Iblis. But if somebody comes with curiosity, genuine curiosity, they just want to understand, then there's no way you should be getting angry at them. You should be addressing their curiosity. I call to Allah with eyes open, with insight. What a beautiful religion. From the very beginning of the story, we are asked to become inquisitive people. That is the legacy of this deen, subhanAllah. And we haven't even gotten into the story yet. May Allah Azza wa Jal give us a better understanding of this deen and make us people of following this faith with open eyes. Barakallahu li wa lakum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.